You know, and the industry saying, hey, it'll be okay. It's fine. Look at this. Joe's been doing it over here for a long time. Guys, I can take you to different towns. I can show you people been doing methamphetamine for a really long time. Global shortages are causing farm input costs to skyrocket. A better way to farm shows you how to take control of inputs and maximize profits so you can farm the way you want. Now, from America's heartland, here's your host. Rod here at A Better Way to Farm, where our goal is to improve yields and increase profits for the grower. Guys, welcome to day two of the 12 Days of Nutrients. Yes, it's themed after the 12 Days of Christmas. Got on my best Christmas shirt today, and we're wanting to see yours. We'll probably run a contest here towards the end of it for the best Christmas sweater or shirt. Today, we're going to talk about potassium. I know in the industry, when we always talk, it's always NPK, but I'm pretty jazzed up about the K. So we're going to dive into it first, talk about it. We'll do phosphorus next. So the first thing that comes to mind for me and a lot of people, they struggle to wrap their head around this is they say, look, man, uh, potassium starts with a P. Why is the symbol K? Well, the reason for that is, is the word callium is the Latin word for potassium. And therefore, we got the K. Obviously, phosphorus symbol is P, and they had to do something different anyway. Guys, I want to open here out of the hands-on agronomy book. And I'm going to read you something that I found very interesting. I knew it, but I reread it last night and I just wanted to share it. Because as we go about our business, it's important to understand our business. And so these books are important. We get to study, we get to learn. But here was something that was interesting to me. He writes in a Mississippi survey, 82% of all farmers' questions said they thought soil tests should be taken on farms to determine how much fertilizer should be used. However, only 28% of the surveyed farmers actually used soil tests. Many farmers, it seems, do not really believe in using soil tests. Guys, I think that's tragic, and we've got to make sure that we're actually doing the right thing here and not just doing guesswork. One of the terms that's going to get tossed around quite a little bit as we go through here is the term humus. And so I want to give you the definition of humus. It's a brown or black complex variable material resulting from the decomposition of plant or animal matter under proper environmental and biological conditions. It's composed chiefly of hydrogen, carbon hydrogen, and oxygen, with varying percents of nitrogen attached. A long chain-like affair with the capacity to bind plant nutrients, phosphate, nitrate, for instance. So there's a lot of things here. It goes on. It says it's a variable sponge for nutrients. Um, it cannot have more than 6% nitrogen on a dry matter basis, 20 to 50%, which is an amino acid form. Guys, humus is important. When we're holding on to that organic matter in the soil, we've got to make sure that we understand all the things that it does. And when we burn that out, we have to understand how important that was, what a mistake that was, so we can attempt to try and get it fixed. We know as we look through here, that it's interesting to me because the different ions have different sizes. Now, understand these are really small. Potassium is the largest of the cations, and it measures 0.133. So that would be basically 13 one-hundredths of, not an inch, of a nanometer. Now, a nanometer would be a thousandth millionth of a meter. We're talking about something that's microscopic here. But the point is... It is very much important to understand it is the largest one. And so, therefore, that size affects availability and such. And so we want to make sure that we're aware of these things, trying to do the right things as we put this out there in a form that can get into it. As I share here from 
life and energy in the soil. I wanted to get fired up here on some of the things that are really important to us and some of the things that are really important to you because it's things to understand that potassium, this element is normally thought of in reference to potash or K2O. And here's the line that I like. Next to nitrogen, it is probably the most misused, overused, and abused element in agriculture. It is also the most profitable for the industry. Its basic function is to determine caliber or thickness of the stock and leaves, fruit size, and the number of fruit that sets. However, used in excess, potassium will replace calcium in cell structure, and this results in a diseased cell. A sure indicator of potash excess is the occurrence of black spots on the leaves. Are you paying attention here? Modern agriculture has become addicted to nitrogen and potash. Like any drug addiction, the requirement for the drug increases constantly. The farmers that are told in order to get more yield, add more nitrogen and potash. As the soil degenerates, it requires more of this drug to just sustain the crop yield. Potash does have its place in crop production, but it must be done in balance with other nutrients. Guys, I've often said, you've heard me talk about if you're on our podcast platform and some different places that a lot of our commercial fertilizers are like methamphetamine. And they're like it in a lot of ways. I've never done that. I happen to know a couple of people who got caught up in that and then went straight. But they talked about how addictive it was. And they talked about the fact that you only had to do it once. And then you just wanted more and you wanted more and you wanted more. And it always took more to get the same job done. So you had to get more and more and more of it. You know, and the funny part is those people who are doing that, they say, oh, it's going to be all right. I'm going to be fine. I can do this. No different than the growers who are using too much N and too much K. You know, and the industry saying, hey, it'll be okay. It's fine. Look at this. Joe's been doing it over here for a long time. Guys, I can take you to different towns. I can show you people been doing methamphetamine for a really long time. Are they okay? Well, they're not dead. I don't know that they're okay. And I think to some degree, that's kind of where we're at with our soils is that we've done this for so long that they're not dead. They're okay, but they'd be a lot better off if we weren't doing that. Jumping on back here to another section of this book that I like very, very much. He talks about the different, some of the different kinds of things and what they do. Starting with this, muriate of potash, often called red potash, white potash, or 0060 or 0062, is potassium chloride. It is the most commonly used potash fertilizer in the country. Ironically, the chlorine content that makes it one of the most detrimental products that can be applied to the soil. When this product comes in contact with acids or acidified fertilizers, then all of a sudden the chlorine will form muriatic acid, commonly known as hydrochloric acid, which will destroy any bacteria it contacts and will acidify the soil, causing such minerals as calcium and iron to become less available. The chlorine that does not become muriatic acid combines with calcium, magnesium, and especially sodium to form chloride salts that are also detrimental in the soil, as they call its dehydration, adverse pH changes. When potassium chloride comes in contact with nitrate, half the chlorine forms hypochlorous acid. That's the main chemical used to disinfect swimming pools. This compound is very hostile to bacteria and thus inhibits their growth. The other half of the chloride forms a chlorine gas, which sifts into the air. And at this point, we're thinking, wow, that's cool, it's gone, we don't have to worry about it. Here's the problem. Chlorine gas is toxic to biological life, including people. It is a gas that is heavier than air. Therefore, it lies close to the surface and in low areas. 
and when chlorine gas contacts water from high humidity or rainfall, some of it forms more hypochlorous acid and may fall as acid rain. So guys, that's not a good thing. When it gets into a gas, it doesn't fix anything for us. He goes on to say, ironically, farmers are told that potassium chloride is not detrimental to the soil, even though professional chemists and petroleum engineers insist that chloride is extremely harmful to the soil. Bottom line is that potassium chloride causes the demise of soil fertility, leading to the need for more and more and more fertilizer, greater amounts of pesticides, and larger, more powerful equipment. It is time for the farmer to become aware of the peril he is creating to take his own interest in hand and turn that situation around. It is argued that chlorine does not hurt anything because it's such a small amount. And research, and that's in air quotes, says that it proves it. Anyone who is familiar with research and statistics know that the parameters of the research project must determine its universality. It is important to find out what those parameters are. For instance, municipal water supplies are normally chlorinated to kill bacteria, good or bad. The concentration of chlorine is between 1 and 2 parts per million. At 10,000 drops per pound, or 8 pounds per gallon, that's one drop of chlorine for every 12 and a half gallons of water. If you have a pool, you're familiar with this. Let's calculate the amount of chlorine applied to the soil. KCL, which contains 40% chlorine, or 40 pounds per 100 pounds of KCL. A one-acre slice of the soil, 43,560 square feet, 6 inches deep, is said to weigh about 2 million pounds. If the farmer puts on 100 pounds of potassium chloride, he has applied 40 pounds of chlorine. To calculate the chlorine concentration, assuming the fertilizer is dispersed evenly throughout the 6-inch slice, it would take 40 pounds of chlorine divided by 2 million pounds, and you would get 20 parts per million of chlorine, or about 10 times what is needed to kill microorganisms. Guys, this is a big deal. Do we get away with it? Yeah, we get away with it. Do we want to do it some more? Probably not. It's time to rethink this. I'm going to talk some, about some options here and some people that I admire and trust in this industry. I do want to talk uh, here about what it looks like if it's deficient. You know, the, the potash deficiency, again, we talked about this yesterday with nitrogen, but it's going to show up as a drying along the tips and the edges of the lowest leaves. It's going to be all the way around the plant. Now, it's important to understand that carbohydrates are part of our products of photosynthesis and phosphate is the key element in that photosynthesis. The carbohydrate deficiency can be technically attributed to a phosphate deficiency. As this is the case, the moly also does not have adequate phosphate to the reason potash appears to eliminate the symptom is that it is applied as myriad of potash, which will convert to potassium nitrate, which will then move into the plant. The potassium nitrate carries a great deal of water, which is containing carbon dioxide in it, and this will temporarily supply enough carbon to partially correct the symptom. Potassium chloride also creates a localized pH change in which moly is more available, and a limited amount of phosphate will grab onto that, which has the least resistance to movement. Guys, the nitrate nitrogen they carried in with the potash corrects the rest of the symptom. See, sometimes we do something and we think, oh, it was the potash that fixed this. It actually wasn't the potash. It was something else that happened due to the chemical reactions in there, and it's masking or covering up for other mistakes that we have made. And so we want to be very careful to understand the science of what we're doing here. On page 30 from uh, Soil Nutrient Viability. And guys, this is a great book, but it is pretty tough to read. And so we go into that and realizing what we're getting when we're putting on that potash. If we go back into hands-on agronomy, and we go to page 80, 
He talks about what happens if there's a shortage. Anytime there is a shortage of potassium, manganese, or copper, the stock strength will be weakened. High potassium ties up manganese. So if we're trying to just fix stock strength by putting on a lot of extra potassium, we're actually hurting ourselves because we create a low manganese situation, and that also hurts with strength. High nitrogen ties up copper. So if we use too much P and too much K, we tie up manganese and copper. High calcium will tie up potassium. Each of these can cause a weak stock. But we've got to make sure that we're doing this in balance. That's the whole thing that we want to get after there with that. Jumping to page 110, again, talking about correctly using our potassium products, one of the things to understand is that high-yielding crops with adequate fertility use water more efficiently. And guys, we really have to understand that he talked about a study here that they did that uh, properly balanced fertility had corn creating 7.6 bushels for every inch of water and the unfertilized or the improperly fertilized was making five bushels per inch of water. Guys, everything we're going to talk about is how we can go around making more drought resistance. It's very important that we drought-proof our crop if we can to the best of our abilities. We're never going to get there. We're never going to, you know, have it be perfect, but we can get a long ways towards that, making sure that we can take a lot more dry times because that seems to be what's coming on. I did find it interesting last night. I was reading an article, and they were talking about how all of this, a lot more snowfall, we can just expect a lot more snowfall due to climate change. And then I read another article that said the climate change is going to cause us to have a big drought with no snowfall and no rain. And I'm not chiming in on climate change. I'm just chiming in to say I really wish the scientists could get their stories straight so I knew what to believe. As we start looking at different things we can do, let me suggest that you listen to a podcast that we put out by uh, Dr. Richard Mulvaney. He is a great guy from the University of Illinois. He has staked his career, his reputation on working very hard for the American farmer and telling the truth. And he has done a great job of that. I want to encourage you to listen to that podcast. It's about potassium. I apologize there. But uh, when he, in his words, it's a conundrum because he has come to the conclusion that we need to rethink the potassium thing. And this is based on years and years and years of research. He says that there is 360,000 pounds of potassium in the top six feet of the soil. Let me say it again. 360,000 pounds of potassium in the top six feet of soil. And so now the question becomes, how do we get the roots to get a hold of it? How are we going to grab it? And looking through our soil nutrient viability book here, as we go about our business today, it says a value of 150 parts per million is frequently considered high enough to ensure that plants growing in the soil receive sufficient potassium and that plant growth is not reduced. Now, please understand there's exchangeable potassium, there's non-exchangeable potassium, and those can move back and forth. The problem is when we apply a lot of K, most of it almost immediately becomes into the non-exchangeable potassium form. When exchangeable potassium is removed from the soil by plant uptake, potassium that was initially non-exchangeable moves into the exchangeable in solution form. Conversely, when potassium fertilizer is added to a soil, potassium moves from solution and exchangeable into non-exchangeable. This potassium may not all come back into the exchangeable in solution form. Some potassium may remain non-available for crop uptake. This is what Mulvaney was talking about, guys. As we look at what we're doing here, we need to understand that how a plant 
How is it that a plant gets potassium into it? First of all, the plant roots grow down, they grow hair roots, and they grow in between the soil colloids. And this is important to understand. And so if them soil colloids are packed really, really tight, and I think somewhere in here we're going to talk about it, this person said that it's like an accordion, uh, that soil colloids are like mini accordions. They can expand and be out, or they can pack down and be real tight. When they're expanded, the roots can go in there a lot easier and grow in between them, and that makes that potassium more available. If they're tight, the roots don't grow in as well. Then the root, what does it do? It exudes an acid. The acid releases the potassium, and then it sucks it back into the root and takes it up. And so we want to make sure that we're doing the right things here to help ourselves be able to get more availability out of that. Looking at from the soil up by Schrieffer, the thing that he gets to talking about here on page 166 is the different forms. He talks about the fact that we have potassium chloride, which is 0060, which is a salt. Chlorine will leach out and become a calcium or form a calcium chloride, which is basically road salt. That's what they do to put on the uh, roads here when we get some snowstorms that are going to be coming soon to us. And I want to go ahead and talk about this real quickly. One of the things that people get to talking about is the difference between chloride and chlorine. The question here that I read was, are they related? And it says that chloride is a negatively charged ionic form of chlorine. Because chlorine is so reactive, it virtually always exists in nature as part of a compound like chloride. Neutral salts like sodium chloride, potassium chloride, and calcium chloride are formed from the chloride, and they're abundant in nature. And so we use those kind of interchangeably. No, they're not exactly the same thing because there's one ion difference, but they do the same thing. And so we want to make sure we get that. Another he talks about another choice that we could use, and it's one that I like. If you're bent on dry broadcasting and using potassium sulfate, someone asked me yesterday, where can you get it? You can get it off the river typically in semi-loads. You need to go to a port. It's quite a bit more expensive, but once you figure in the value of the sulfur, it's about the same. I would also encourage to you that when you use uh, potassium sulfate, you can put on half as much and still get the same result. And so there are just some things there that we can look at. Uh, he talks about the fact that exchangeable surface potassium is depleted, then there is a storehouse of K that will move out from between the clay layers back to the surface exchange sites in an attempt to reach and to gain and maintain an equilibrium. He's very big on saying if you're going to use potash, if you're going to use potassium, it's important to understand the timing. We want to have high yields, we must apply potassium. We have to apply more potassium than the soil can hold. Are you listening here? If you're going to use this, you've got to actually over-apply it. And so therefore, he says it is very feasible that banding is far superior to broadcasting, especially on lower CE soils. Because if we use them lower CE soils and we band it, then it, it's over-applied in that spot and becomes more available and becomes very friendly to us. The banding of, of a cation as potassium would not be done in a clay soil because it would not penetrate sufficiently into the root zone. I want to talk here for a minute about the important things that we end up with in far as ratios. I'm going to come back on this and I'll pound on it when we do magnesium, but guys, there is an important ratio between potassium and magnesium, and we have to understand that. And it can be out of whack either way. We've seen this make growers a lot of money and cost growers a lot of money. Your K should not exceed your mag in parts per million. We'll get into base saturations in a minute, but I'm talking about in parts per million. Ideally, we would have magnesium that is three to five times greater than our potassium levels. And out west, if we get into some of the guys out in Nebraska and out and farther out west, 
And they just have a ton of K. They have a lot of high mag soils, but they have more K than they have mag. And once that happens, there's, you got to figure out how to farm around this, and we've got to do some things in order to make it more effective. And we're going to have to apply some infro magnesium in order to get past that or fully or feed it. The other thing that can happen is you can have magnesium that's way too high. I see magnesium sometimes as 10 times the amount of K, and that makes a row-placed high K starter very, very, very important. And so we got to just make sure that we're doing everything in balance. That's the secret of life. It's not about doing everything all at one time. It's not about doing a ton of everything. It's about doing the right things at the right time, at the right rate, the right place. In base saturations, we're probably looking for a K level somewhere between 3 and 5, maybe 3 and 6%. If we're not at that level, we'll try and figure out how to build them. If we're above that level, we need to probably be thinking about what is it that it's at the expense of, because it's probably at the expense of having enough calcium and so therefore we want to figure out how to raise that K and get it or excuse me raise that calcium and get it up into the level where we need it to be. Looking at hands-on agronomy there are several things in here I want to share with you. He calls potassium the freelancer in plants. He talked about the fact that if um, our pH is above 6.5 we don't want to put on any kind of a potash material in the fall. As a matter of fact, he tells his clients that if soil pH is above 6.5, not to put it on the fall unless they have a huge deficiency or they're going to plant winter wheat. Potash and phosphate will exhibit a tremendous increase between fall and spring once the decomposition of crop residue takes place. This is a product, guys, that recycles. It's why getting all of the potassium into the corn plant is important because then that when we get proper uptake, we end up with a better residue that we can leave behind and therefore it recycles very fast. I'm very excited about that because that's great news for you as you go about trying to build your levels here. Kinsey says that in the top six inches, there's about 50,000 pounds of potassium in the top seven inches. However, it's generally in the wrong form to use. If your soil can be managed to turn loose this mother load of nutrients in small amounts over a period of time, it is possible to go a long time without potassium inputs. We can take off crop after crop after crop without running out of potassium. The key is to get the microbial activity going in the soil. Guys, we got to make a decision what we're going after here. Are we just going to put on more and more and more and more fertilizer and spend more and more and more money? Or are we going to try to figure out what we can do to utilize what we already have and save ourselves some cash and be more effective? That's the real key is to be more effective. There is a theory in the Midwest that says... Potassium gets around water, finally gets trapped in between the colloids, and it can't get loose until something is done to change the soil chemistry. In fact, that is that it is unavailable to the plant because the soil colloid has trapped it. Perhaps that is why, whenever magnesium gets higher and higher, the soil gets tighter and tighter, and potassium availability gets lower and lower. This is what Mulvaney says. The more potassium chloride you put on, the more you can contract that accordion, the tighter the soil gets, and you end up with not having an availability of all of the potassium that you've put out there. In the presence of ammonium nitrogen, there will be a problem with microbial fixation and attachment to the soil colloid. The higher the nitrogen, the more potassium it will take to do the same job. So when we overapply in, what happens? We create the need for a lot of other things to be overapplied. That's why it's important to be gunning and say, how is it that we can grow this corn on seven-tenths of a pound of nitrogen and get it right because if we're over-applying nitrogen, then we have to over-apply a lot of other things too. And all of a sudden, we're getting the results that we want, but we're getting them at a much higher cost than what we need to. 
And I'm going to share something with you guys that's very, very important, and it, it's in this book, but I'm not going to read that to you. I'm going to show you something from Midwest Labs, and it's a slide. It's called the Early Season Uptake of NP and K. And what this says is, guys, one of my friends, she was at a meeting here in the last couple of days, and they were talking all about more phosphorus, more phosphorus, more phosphorus, 1034-0, don't use any K, you don't want any potassium. Here's the fact of the matter. Fact number one, K does not become available until the soil temperature gets to somewhere around 65 degrees, maybe 70, depending on which soil scientist you're talking to. That's a fact. Fact number two, in the first 25 days of a corn plant's life, it takes 19 pounds of nitrogen, 4 pounds of phosphate, and 22 pounds of potassium. Okay, That's five and a half times more potassium than it takes phosphate when we plant in cold soils. The second 25 days, so now we're on day 26 through 50, it needs 84 pounds of nitrogen, 27 pounds of phosphate, and 104 pounds of potassium. Guys, early K is important. This is why we push K starters. I've heard a lot of theories people talking about why it is that you don't want to have K in your starter. I'd like to take the theories away and say, let's go test it. Let's go out here and use a high-quality NPK starter and compare it and see what happens. Here's a fact of the matter, guys. Here's the real problem. By day 50, that corn plant has, should have received 53% of its potassium, and it's received only 31% of its phosphorus. So phosphorus can come in later as the soil temperature increases, but that K has got to go, and it's got to go right now. And it's really important to get it in there early on. And if we build those levels, then we can go ahead and have a quicker turnaround because that residue will decompose and recycle that. Coming out of the Midwest Handbook, Midwest uh, Labs Handbook, they talk about potassium in here. And it talks about the fact that there are forms relatively unavailable, 98% of the potassium in the soil, slowly available. 90 to 98%, slowly available is 1 to 10%, readily available is somewhere between one-tenth of a percent and 2%. Guys, that's the thing we're looking for. How do we turn in the relatively unavailable into slowly? How do we turn the slowly into readily? And we do it by getting that soil alive and growing. So we want to make sure that we're doing the right things here in order to get this working the way that it wants. Life is simple. Figure out how it works and get on the right side of it. And guys, we've got to be very careful who we're listening to. My friend who was at that meeting called me and she's like, I'm really confused because here's the things that they were saying and I don't understand it and it's not consistent and I don't know where they were getting their information, but we're sourcing our information from Midwest Laboratories. We're sourcing it from PhDs who've given their whole life to this. And I'm going to share a little secret with you here. And I wrote down table of ratings and the scan. If you go into Midwest Labs, you can find something called the table of ratings. And it talks about, it shows us what the levels are. For instance, it says, you know, if you have zinc at 0.5 parts per million, you're very low. If you're between 06 and 10, you're low. If you're 1.1 to 3, you're medium. 3.1 to 6, you're high, and so on. The thing that most people don't talk about is it also shows us what's low levels in potassium. Potassium is very dependent upon CEC. Why do I say that? Well, let's pretend you're farming with a CEC of 15. If you have a CEC of 15 and have a potassium level of 152 parts per million, it's considered high. And that is a good thing. That's where you want to be. But if that CEC, that same CEC now is at 25 and you have 152 parts per million, you're low. What happens here is a lot of people will come out and they will show you this chart for potassium and they will pretend that you have a CEC of 30. 
and therefore to be high you need 262 parts per million. But most of us are farming with CECs of 12, 15, maybe 20, and all of a sudden 152 is considered high. That CEC impacts how much potassium we can hold, guys, and this chart is well worth its money. This is something we're going to spend a bunch of time on in our two-day fundamentals of agronomy training. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the importance of this ratio between K and mag. And guys, it's well worth your time to come and take a look at that. I, I read in one of these books that someone was talking about the fact that, I think it was Kinsey talked that most of these guys that you go to a two-day meeting and they spend about 15 minutes on agronomy and then they get to talking about margins and they get to talking about inventory and they get to talking about all these different things that have nothing to do with the end grower. And that's what we're looking at with our two-day meeting. The only thing we're talking about is agronomy. And so we're going to spend that time figuring out how it is we can become more successful at what we do and help guys to make a little more money in the process of growing here because if the end user isn't getting a good deal, nobody's getting a good deal. In the interest of time, I'm not going to share this last thing here out of the soil fertility and fertilizers. If you have the book, go read page 227. There's a lot of good material here, guys, and there's a lot of things. I try to cut these off at a certain time. Guys, in recapping this, we know the magnesium-potassium ratio is important. We know that sometimes putting on a lot more KCL actually reduces availability of K. We know that nitrogen and potassium are a lot like methamphetamine. The more we take, the more we need. What we want to do is figure out how to get by with what we have. How do we raise that organic matter? How do we get these to recycle better? And the last thing I'll leave you with is this. It's a study that was done. It was published out of University of Nebraska at Lincoln. And this is why early K is important. Guys, in this study, if they grew 175 bushel corn, the total nutrient uptake of K, in other words, 175 bushel corn could be grown by uptaking 166 pounds of potassium. To move to 257 bushel, which is about a 50% increase, to increase the yield by 50%, the K uptake went from 166 to 450 pounds you have to take up almost three times as much potassium into that plant. What happens with it? It gets left behind in the residue. That 257 bushel grain is taking roughly 50 pounds of K out the gate and leaving 400 pounds of readily recyclable potassium in those stocks. Guys, here's the magic. Here's the secret sauce to getting this thing to work right and getting it to work for you. High yields, adequate potassium in the plant, quick turnaround, quick recycling, and all of a sudden, life is pretty easy. You figure out what works and you get on the right side of it. Guys, thank you for tuning in. We'll be coming back soon with the third segment. and We look forward to talking to you then. A better way to farm dot com. You're listening on the Verbal Crowd Network. Find more great shows at verbalcrowd.com.